Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So the text for today's sermon is the John reading. Uh, John 8, verses 42 to 59. If you have one of the black Bibles, that's on page 702. John 8, 42 to 59. And um, the one-year lectionary drops us right into the middle of an argument that Jesus is having with some people in the temple. So we're going to just write, jump right in on verse 42. John 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And this is the thing I want you to notice about this verse. Jesus says that it is impossible to love the Father. It is impossible to love God, but to reject Jesus. Because God, especially God the Father, and God the Son are one. And we're super used to hearing this. But it bears repeating. John of Damascus says, For there is one essence, one goodness, one power, one will, one authority. Not three similar to each other, but one. And Jesus makes this point over and over and over again, especially in the Gospel of John. I and the Father are one, he says. If you knew me, you would know the Father, he says. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he says. And, and I've said this before, um, but I, again, I, I think this is worth saying. Some Christians have an idea that there is some sort of a major difference between the Father and the Son, that the Father is harsh, and He is angry, and He is critical, and He is looking for somebody to punish, and He is wrathful, but Jesus is loving. And Jesus leaps in between the Father and us to protect us from this angry, wrathful evil father. But that's not right at all. On the contrary, Jesus says, I came not of my own accord. The father, because he loves you, because he he longs to be reconciled to you, the father sent me. Later he's going to turn to the disciples and he's going to say to them, in fact, the father himself loves you so deeply. But to this group, he says this. This is verse 43. Why do you not understand what I say? And there's there's hidden in the Greek um, an odd word choice that he has here. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, it's like I'm speaking a different language to you. And he's implying that they belong to different countries the way that somebody, and let's say I don't speak Spanish at all, the way that somebody from Mexico speaks Spanish fluently, doesn't speak any English, and I speak English fluently, I don't speak a lick of Spanish. And I say, I I can't even understand a word you're saying. He's saying to them, you can't understand a word I am saying, which goes right along with, by the way, what we've been tracing, the theme we've been tracing throughout this Lenten series. The readings that were chosen by the earlier generations of Christians for Lent, as they've progressed, they've built an idea that there is no neutral ground. There is no Switzerland in this world. There is either the devil's kingdom or there is Jesus. You are either a citizen of the world or you are a citizen of heaven. And if you dislike what Jesus says, 
It's because you speak a different language, he says. It's because you're from Satan's kingdom, what Paul calls the kingdom of darkness. Jesus answers his own question. This is 43, the rest of 43. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And this is an echo of something that he had said earlier in John. He said, uh, John writes that the people loved the darkness because their works were evil. The reason that he says they cannot bear his word is because they do not want their own evil to be exposed. They don't want to have to stare it in the face. But to reject Jesus' words, to reject the truth because you just don't want it to be true is exactly the kind of thing that Satan would do. And when we say this is the kind of thing that Satan would do, what that means is that it is satanic. And that's the point that he makes. Verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. I'm only going to make this joke once, but Jesus is really trying to make friends here, right? To influence people. C.S. Lewis said something interesting. He said in... Um, in, he wrote an introduction to Milton's Paradise Lost. And um, he said, look, rooting for Satan is crazy in Paradise Lost. Satan's world, this is the quote, Satan's world is a world of lies, propaganda, and wishful thinking. That's why he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Well, what does the devil desire? Jesus says his desire is to murder and to lie. To lie and to murder. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. And what he's obviously talking about when he's referring to this, this murderousness of Satan is he's talking about the, what he did to Adam and Eve. He's obviously talking about that moment in the garden where God had put the man and the woman in the garden, given them everything that they could want, everything that they could ever need, and the only condition was, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God had said to Adam, and Eve, to Adam when you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan walks in and he says, surely you will not die. It's the exact opposite of the truth. This is a lie. And Adam and Eve chose that lie. And the result was death. Hence, he says, the, the murder of Adam and Eve. And it meant death for every single human being since then. Romans 5 says that through Adam's sin came into the world and death through sin. And so sin and death spread to all men. Which means that everyone that you've ever loved who has died, anyone that you have ever cared for who has died, Jesus says was murdered by Satan. And in the last four or five weeks, I've been making the case that Satan really hates us. And this is my evidence. He wants to murder us. This is his goal. This is what he's worked at. This is what he has achieved. 
Luther, um, you, you guys know about the small catechism. He also wrote a large catechism, which is a series of sermons on the six parts of the small catechism. And they're brilliant. They're really, really fun. It's one of my favorite documents that he ever wrote. And he says in the, Lord's, in the section on the Lord's Prayer, he says this, quote, Since the devil is not only a liar, but also a murderer, he constantly seeks our life. He wrecks his vengeance wherever he can afflict our bodies with misfortune and harm. Therefore, it happens that Satan often breaks men's necks or drives them to insanity or drowns some of them or moves many to commit suicide and many other terrible disasters. It's part of Satan's nature to do this to us. But there's a crazy thing about this passage. When I was in high school, I was made to memorize the Declaration of Independence. Anybody else had to do that in high school? Yeah, yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a clause in it that has always stuck with me. It goes like this, quote, All experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. What, this, what that's saying is that people would literally choose to stay with the devil that they know than the discomfort of facing their own sin if it means having to face it through Christ's truth. That's what Jesus says. Look at verse 45. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Because I'm telling the truth, you refuse to believe me. Because it would be this confrontation with what you're comfortable with, you refuse to believe me. So he kind of, he, he shifts and he, he takes a different tact. He appeals instead to basic reason and logic. This is what he says, verse 46. Which one of you? And I assume there's a largish crowd around him. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And if you think about this, this, this claim is absolutely astounding. He is perfectly confident that nobody, nobody in the crowd, nobody in the disciples, nobody among his family, nobody among his enemies, the Pharisees and the scribes who are like actively trying to trap him and are arguing with him, no one can find a sin that they can point to and say, there's a sin. And the, the crazy thing about this is this proves to be true when he's actually taken a trial. When the Sanhedrin gathers and they try to, to bring witnesses against him, they, they're trying to convict him of some sort of sin, but it becomes immediately obvious from the wild contradictions of the witnesses that all of them are lying. Nobody can make anything stick. Then when he's tried in front of Pilate, Pilate says the same thing. I find no guilt in him. You got nothing on this guy. I want you to stop and think about what this means. It means that literally the best theological minds of the day, some of the best legal minds of the day, could not convict him of sin. And Jesus is saying, look, if I am sinless, 
then that by definition means I am not lying. And if I am not lying, that by definition means I am telling what? The truth. And if I am telling the truth, then you should believe me. And he's going to make the same argument at his trial. In John 18, he says, this is John 18, verse 22, when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Listen to Jesus' answer. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. Point out what I got wrong here. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He goes on, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And he's identifying at this point a, a basic problem with humanity after the fall. So, so mankind is created and we're created slightly differently than the animals. God made us in his image, giving us the capacity to know things. And particularly a couple things that the animals can't know. To know him in a personal way. And by extension, knowing him, knowing ourselves to know what is the truth. To know reality as reality, not just as what we experience. And if you think about this, you can see this in the Garden of Eden. Adam knows reality, knows the truth so well that when God brings the animals to him, he gives them their appropriate names based on his knowledge of each of the animals. He knows exactly what to call it. And the first lie, the first lie that enters Adam's experience is when Satan comes in. When Satan directly contradicts God, God says you will die. Satan says you surely will not die. And the fascinating thing is that Paul says in 2 Timothy that Adam was not deceived by this lie. He was not deceived. Eve was. Eve thought it was true. Eve was deceived. But Paul says specifically that Adam knew the truth and still he ate. What does that mean? It means he knew the truth, but he did not love it. He exchanged the truth about God for a lie, which Romans 1 says is what humanity has been doing ever since then. And humanity, having rejected God, now cannot love the truth. And this is a point worth clarifying. It is not the case that we don't know what the truth is, humanity writ large. Postmodernity loves to kind of ironically toy with the idea that you can't know what truth is and isn't. Like famously, Pilate's absolutely disingenuous and self-serving question, well, what is truth? Right? We know what truth is. We all know what truth is. According to Plato, truth asserts the existence of things that just are. According to Aristotle, truth is to say of what is that it is. Falsehood, according to Augustine, is when something is thought to be which is not. Aquinas says that truth is conformity of the intellect with the thing. 
In other words, a true statement is one that simply corresponds to reality, and all of mankind knows this. We know it, but according to Paul, we suppress it because it means things. Men, by their unrighteousness, says Paul in Romans 1, suppressed the truth. Why? Because it turns out that the ultimate reality is God. And sinful man wants nothing to do with God. And I want to stay with this for just one minute more. Psychologists tell us that all humans are born with the capacity to lie, with the ability to lie. It's not a learned behavior. That lying is ubiquitous. And God says the same thing in the Bible. Uh, in Numbers 23:19, the author just assumes that lying is characteristic of all humans. Moses says, God is not man that he should lie. And not only do we lie, we then go on to dedicate our entire lives to pursuing those lies. That's what Ecclesiastes means over and over again when it says vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That word vanity is like, like a mist. It's a non-real thing. And Solomon says, money, that's vanity. That's not real. Sex, that's vanity. That's not real. Pursuit of fame, that's vanity. Accomplishments, that's vanity. Pursuit of safety or security, that's vanity. Pursuit of good health, not real. That's a lie. Solomon says that the pursuit of, it's the pursuit of a mist, of a nothing, of a vanity, of a, of a lie. And even God's own chosen people do this. Israel has the truth. Over and over again, God sends them the prophets. Robert Jensen says he's, he won't shut up about it. He keeps sending them people, keeps telling them the truth. Constantly then, Israel chooses to reject it. This is Isaiah 30, verse 9. There were rebellious people. Lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. They know, they just don't want it. They don't love it. And it's shortly after this indictment in Isaiah of the people of Israel's rejection of the truth, which is a rejection of God himself, that God actually takes his presence out of the temple. They reject him, so he leaves. And the temple, even after they rebuild it, after the exile, and they consecrate it again, remains empty for hundreds of years. And God does not return unto his temple until Jesus is brought as a baby by Mary and Joseph. And it's probably significant that this whole argument in John chapter 8 is taking place where? In the temple. And the reason it's significant is because what we see here is history repeating itself. Because the people are rejecting him again. Let's go on verse 48. 
The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And probably in this context, by Samaritan, they mean a heretic, right? Somebody who believes in a false religion. And, and here's, here's how this works. Um, when they can't convict him of sin, when they can't find a flaw in his reasoning, what do, what do people do when they can't do that kind of thing? They go ad hominem. They go after him personally. Is it not true? Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? And this is super illogical because Jesus is the one who is known for converting the Samaritans. Look at John chapter 4. Jesus is the one who is constantly casting out demons. So he answers, verse 49. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. They scorn him because of his obedience to the Father. 50. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I love this. Jesus does not need to defend his own honor. What he is mostly concerned for in this, in this entire argument with them, what he is primarily concerned for is that they believe the truth. He does not defend his honor. Why? Because Jesus has a confidence that the Father will vindicate him. And this is the prayer and the belief of all of God's people. The, the psalm for today was just, just perfect. Psalm 43, 1 says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. And then here's the lying thing, right? From the deceitful and the unjust man, deliver me. And here's God's promised response. This is Psalm 135. For the Lord will vindicate, vindicate his people and have compassion on all his servants. When does that happen with Jesus? Well, this is why God raises him from the dead. This is why we insist on the resurrection of the dead being a historical fact. Because the resurrection is the moment when it becomes clear that God thinks that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus has been speaking the truth all along. And if we're going to notice that, then probably we should also notice that this is true for you and me. That's when you and I will be vindicated too, at the resurrection. Which is why... One of, the emphases of, one of the emphases of the Christian community has always been telling the truth rather than managing our own expectations, our own reputations, rather. We leave our reputations to God. We speak the truth. And speaking of the truth, Jesus doubles down. Look at verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, it's probably significant that in this conversation about who's lying and who's telling the truth, Jesus starts the sentence with, hey, I'm going to say something true here. True, true. I truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That is, if you are united to the Son of God by faith, then the second death has no power over you. Verse 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died. 
as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? And the Apostle John, who's writing this, loves pointing out those times that are so ironic. Because this question, are you greater than our father Abraham? That's a Greek construction that, allows, that only allows for a, yes, a no answer. It's like they're saying, what are you? Greater than Abraham? Jesus answers 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, then I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. There's two things I want to point out about this. First is, Jesus says, it is not me who is saying great things about myself. That's not what's going on here. Instead, every miracle, every sign, every exorcism, every healing testifies to the work that the Father is doing through me. That's the glory. It's the Father's glory. Second, the fact that you cannot recognize this shows that you are in opposition to God. Shows that you are entrenched and trapped in the devil's kingdom of lies. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And um, earlier in the chapter, in chapter 8, uh, the Jews had been making a big deal about how they were descendants from Abraham. Because Abraham and Jesus says, look, yes, you, you might be physically descended from Abraham, but you're not spiritually descended because Abraham had faith and you are doing the exact opposite. You are rejecting and he just goes a little bit further here. He says, look, Abraham's faith means seeing Jesus and being glad. That's what faith, that's what Abraham's faith means. And we think he's probably talking about that time when Abraham is in his tent and he sees three travelers and it's pretty clear that one of them is the pre-incarnate Christ and he visits Abraham and he promises to Abraham that in a year Abraham will have that son that he wants so bad, that son through whom the whole world will be blessed. And in that story, Abraham honors the son of God which is the exact opposite of what these guys are doing. Verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old. and Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. And his whole ministry to the Jewish people, they're, they're, they're asking him constantly throughout John, especially, but also in like Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're asking him, who are you? Where are you from? Are you the Christ? By what authority are you doing these things? And his whole ministry, he's been working on getting to this particular answer. And now Jesus makes a strong and completely unambiguous claim that no one can misunderstand so that they know that they even know the truth. 
He says, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am. That's that, that's that name that God reveals is his name. I am Yahweh who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. I am the God that revealed himself in Isaiah 43. He, this is Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared, I saved, I proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And that I am is so significant. Abraham was. Abraham was conceived. Abraham was born. Abraham lived. Abraham died. Abraham was. Jesus says, I am. I am yesterday. I am today. I am forever. I am outside of time. In fact, I'm the creator of all things, including time. I am the very ground and source of reality. I am truth. I am what is. I am. And they perfectly understood what he was claiming. And they hated it. They hated it. Look at 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They know the truth. They can't contradict it but they hate it. And so they go from lies to murder. Pick up the stones. And John wants you to notice how completely history is repeating itself. Because when Israel has again rejected God, God again leaves the temple. They've rejected him as their God. They knew the truth. They did not love it. They hated it. But God does not reject them. He loves them still. Because he leaves not just the temple, but the whole city of Jerusalem. A city that is in bondage to Satan's lives. Jesus goes outside the city walls, and there he gives his life. For what? Well, to forgive every single lie told. To forgive every lie that you've ever believed, because you wanted to free you from the prison that your lies have entrapped you in and to bid you to follow him out of the devil's kingdom of lies and into a new Jerusalem that he is preparing for us, which is just short to say to set us free. Because that's what the truth does. It wasn't part of our reading, but earlier in the chapter he had said that the truth will set you free. And then when the Bible begins describing what this new Jerusalem is like, there's, there's an interesting little detail. And it just jumped out at me as I was working on this. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no deceit at all. So this is Zephaniah 3.13. They shall do no injustice and speak no 
lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. This is Psalm 24, uh, verses 3 through 5. So Zephaniah is true. Therefore, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand on his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. This is why Paul says in the Colossians reading for this morning, But now you must put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And then he wants to really lay hard on this. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. Because no lies are permitted in the New Jerusalem. I only chose one for the sake of time, but... Uh, three or four times in the last three chapters of Revelation, as, as, as John is seeing the new Jerusalem, he notices something about it. And this is Revelation twenty two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, those are who get in because of Jesus' death on the cross, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So instead, David asks, this is Psalm 15, well, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And then David answers, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue. So, this then is our prayer, right? Psalm 24, 4 says, Make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. And teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. Or the, the reading that Christian gave us from Psalm 43. Send out, we beg you, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me. Lead you where? Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. This is our prayer. Amen. And the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.